0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Many brilliant history books have been published this year. Titles that let us escape into the past or help us make sense of our 21st century surroundings. So in today's episode, we wanted to celebrate some of those books. BBC History Magazine's books editor, Rhiannon Davis, was joined by historians Michael Wood, Rana Mitter and Catherine Nixie to find out which books captured their imaginations in 2022.
2: So hello and welcome to the Books of the Year 2022. I'm your host Rhiannon Davis, books editor for BBC History magazine, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Catherine Nixie, Michael Wood and Rana Mitter. Would you all like to
3: introduce yourselves? So I'm Catherine Nixie and I write for The Economist and I also write books about the ancient world.
4: I'm Michael Wood, I'm a filmmaker. with a special interest in Anglo-Saxon history. And I'm Rana Mitter.
5: I teach Chinese history and politics at Oxford University, and I'm one of the presenters of Free Thinking, the BBC Arts and Ideas programme.
2: Thanks to you all for joining me today, and let's dive straight in. So what would you put forward as this year's best popular history book?
4: I think the best popular history book is Winters in the World, that I've come across, by Eleanor Parker. Uh, and it's a very, very... I mean, some people might think a rather niche subject, which is is the year in Anglo-Saxon England, uh, taking you through the months, the festivals, the, and and it's about you know in the biggest way when when we study history, we really you hope to hear the voices of the people of the past. That's that's it, and and she gives us the voices of the people of the past here. The the you know the calendars, the the little. Um, Things that you see in manuscripts, the poems, the maxims, and it's a very touching projection into their world. And it's a very ecological book in some ways because, of course, it's about the seasons and, and their conviction, of course, that things would never change. This is the unchanging rhythm of life on earth, you know. And as a portrait of the psychology of our ancestors a thousand years ago, I find it really, really touching.
5: I've been really impressed by a new book called Horizons, a Global History of Science by James Poskett, who's um, a professor at Warwick University. And... It is exactly what it says on the cover. It is a way of looking at the world of science and the development of technology not just through the lens of the enlightenment turns up and then we have the early modern era the modern era and boom science spreads to the world from the west but rather looking at it from a genuinely global perspective and the book starts with the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan and the engineering marvels that were present there already you know built for many centuries when uh, the uh, Spanish turned up uh, with the uh, the conquest of the of the early modern era. And he goes on through an account which takes in Arabic science, Chinese science, as well, of course, as the story of the West that is better known. So it's a genuinely global and really well-written and engaging account of science.
3: So mine is Magnificent Rebels by Andrea Wolff. And it's a book about this tiny nondescript German town called Jena, which accidentally became the kind of intellectual heart of of Enlightenment Europe when large numbers of German intellectuals sort of turned up there almost by chance and started making friends with each other, arguing with each other, falling out with each other catastrophically and at length and with lots of writing uh, sent between them furiously, having affairs with each other. Um, you've got Alexander von Humboldt, who's sort of electrocuting frogs' legs. You've got Goethe, who's writing poetry and then feeling glum. You've got Schiller. You've got all these people who turn up, and then you've got the French Revolution kind of lapping at the edges of this town at the same time, creating this enormous tension and fun and lots of angry intellectuals. It's very good, and it reminds you that kind of the way that uh, the way that intellectual movements happen. You, someone said this in a review, but you think of the person in their study beavering away but in fact it's 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 a kind of group thing you get the blooms reset you get you know the lunar men you get these suddenly you get these in often odd places people all coming together and sparking off each other
2: so thinking then about your particular areas of interest which book in your specialist area were you most impressed by this year and why
5: I'm going to nominate a book in my field, which is Chinese history. And it's a book by a very brilliant young historian called Julian Gewitz. Now, I will have to declare an interest here in that I had the pleasure of teaching Julian earlier on, but he's moved on to become an extremely distinguished figure in the contemporary Chinese political field. But he is a historian at heart and by practice. And his new book, Never Turn Back, is about the era of This is a name that used to be at the center of Chinese history in what you might call the contemporary history era, the 1980s. For those who don't remember, he was the prime minister of China who stood with the students in Tiananmen Square in 1989, and he gave them a rather bleak message. He said... I've come too late. And he was then whisked off into house arrest for the rest of his life. He he died in 2005. But what Gewürz has done is to take a whole variety of materials, um, which were made available through, you know, slightly sort of um, underground sources, you might say, and and then made public, which looked at the contribution of Zhao Ziyang to the making of China's market economy in the 1980s. And this might sound like a dry subject. But first of all, Gewürz really brings to mind or brings to life what it was that the intellectual atmosphere of China in the 1980s was about. It was a time not just that they were thinking about new ways of bringing the market to a communist economy, but Milton Friedman, you know, the free market economist visited China and was, you know, literally barricaded in his hotel room during that time because so many of the the, the communists were outraged by what what he had to do. And Zhao Ziyang took that path between being a very dedicated member of the Communist Party, But seeing a way in which markets could be brought back into the way that China operates. And these days, when people say Deng Xiaoping, perhaps one of the most famous names of modern China, was the guy who brought market economics back to China after the era of the Cultural Revolution of Mao, there's some truth to that. But the name that everyone's forgetting because he was purged is Zhao Ziyang. And that's what Gewürz's book does, brings him back to proper
4: historical Prominence. It's a really fantastic story, isn't it? Um, you, uh, it? It does make you wonder whether there were other paths possible for China at that point and whether there still are other paths
5: possible. Certainly, Zhao Ziyang himself, while not someone who believed in a multi-party type of liberal democracy, was absolutely an advocate of a more open China in which anything could be debated, including democratic systems, but also ideas that artists and intellectuals should be free to have more space to put forward awkward ideas. Today's China has pro- provided a much more narrow space for that kind of intellectual debate. But as you pointed out, Michael, it goes back and forth, and we can all hope that maybe China will go back to being a more open place, as it was in the 1980s with Zhao Ziang as the prime minister.
2: Well, this leads me on really nicely to my next question, which is looking at 2022 itself. So we've seen a lot of milestones this year. We've seen the invasion of Ukraine, the continuing climate emergency, the death of Queen Elizabeth II how can the books that have come out this year help us make sense of our modern world?
3: So I write about the royals for The Economist and one of the books that um, I'm interested in reading, I haven't yet read it, but it's um, Val Lowe's written a book called Courtiers. And it's the thing you always wonder, who is behind this family? Because there's a lot going on and there's very, very high-powered people. I mean, you you assume it's just sort of press secretaries and they're getting people from government coming to serve the royal family and then acting as their advisors, travelling with them, advising them on everything. And Val Lowe, who's the royal correspondent for The Times, and I always get the impression a slight royal sceptic, has written this book about the people who, who are around the royal family, and they're an interesting bunch. And I, I'm looking forward to reading it to see exactly exactly what goes on, because there's a huge machinery that you don't see. You see this kind of royal carriage, but around it there are huge numbers of people making everything work and trying to guide everything, which actually makes it all the more surprising the mistakes that get made.
5: Catherine's mention of the royals reminds me actually of emperors. And while that might sound like a rather old-fashioned term, actually one book that came out this year, Dominic Levin's The Emperor in History, I think actually is a really interesting way into some of those questions about Russia, Ukraine, and China beyond it. So Levin is a specialist on Russia, based at the London uh, School of Economics, but his book actually has a wider sweep. It it looks at czars and it also looks at Chinese emperors and also the kind of imperial mindset. And I think, you know, on the 24th of February 2022, which clearly is going to be a date which whatever happens from this point is going to be of deep historical significance, a breach with the world that we thought we knew where after 1945 countries almost never invaded each other. In that world, understanding the imperial mindset has become much more important. Why? Because actually, one of the things that empires do is to find ways to incorporate land and to legitimize and justify themselves in that incorporation in a way that is different from the world of nation states. We've got so used to the idea that you have bounded territories, you have essentially, you know, Republican forms or constitutional monarchies. And the idea that essentially you have these figures who argue that actually the expansion, whether through territory or through culture. I mean, again, it's notable that in the invasion of Ukraine, one of the arguments that Russia has used very, very strongly is the idea that culturally somehow people in eastern Ukraine who speak Russian should be considered part of a Russian empire, even though in nationalistic terms or in national terms, their boundaries, of course, are recognized as not being in Russia at all. And the Leven book gives a fantastic historical perspective on why emperors have been so important in the context of what you might call broader Eurasia, both Europe and Asia and across the central plains.
4: And the imperial mindset is something that intrigues me even when you don't have an empire anymore like China. Um, There's Chinese historians, you know, much more about this than I do, who have written about kind of monarchism as they translate it into English, where the image of the all-powerful, all-benign, wise, controlling ruler was appropriated by Chairman Mao from the imperial age and is still going on with Xi Jinping in this. Absolutely.
5: That idea that you can actually have some sort of... um source of legitimacy, source of power that comes from the personality sitting on the throne has become much more important. It's notable that one of the ways that actually you know Chinese thinkers about international politics today have started talking about that in China is the term which means it's sometimes translated slightly romantically as everything under heaven. But even that translation gives the idea that actually there's a sort of longer standing, more pre-modern element, even in a world of quite clashing nation states in a very sort of modern way.
2: So continuing to think about Empire then, I noticed that both of you nominated Caroline Elkin's new book, Legacy of Violence. What was it that drew you to that book?
4: Well, there's been a, a huge debate, as you know, over the British Empire slavery, uh, the violence of the empire. I'm one of many people who, for more than 20 years, have been arguing that the British Empire should be put at the heart of the curriculum in schools because it is the thing that unifies us. It's the one common thing. Whatever your background, wherever your ancestors came from, that's the thing that binds us together. And we have really failed to to acknowledge what the empire did. Uh, I mean, it's every day now. I don't know whether you saw Newsnight last night, but they had this horrendous report about what the British troops and massacres in, in deliberate cold blooded massacres in Palestine, you know, um, uh, during the 1930s. The, everywhere they went, violence it determined the nature of things, you know. And uh, of course, Indian historians are now majorly looking at this, and and many British historians too, William Dalrymple's books and his podcasts, you know, people are starting to face up to the fact that the empire was, uh, at, like all empires, is essentially violent. And uh, we have lived for so long with this idea that somehow, well, things went wrong, you know, there was the Amritsar massacre or there was this, but essentially the empire was benign, that we haven't faced up to its... its um, it's reality, and that's now what people are, are are looking at, and and it's proving a very difficult conversation, isn't it?
3: Yeah, but one well worth having. I, I've been listening to William Dalrymple, so William Dalrymple's done this podcast with Anita Anand, who he's previously written a book about the Kohi Diamond, and I think the Kohi Diamond is something that will come up in twenty twenty three as well when there's a coronation. But they they both make the point that it's not taught in schools. It's just. Britain just kind of either lost interest or was embarrassed or or something. And so people grow up knowing next to nothing about it, mm. apart from the very foggiest, foggiest ideas.
5: I think that's right. I mean, what Catherine and Michael have said is, is absolutely right. I put the book on list and I'll actually add another book, which is not so much a history book as a book of historical significance. So Caroline Elkin's Legacies of Violence, uh, which is a pretty comprehensive history. Although it goes all the way from the 18th century to the 20th, it's, it's mostly concentrated in the 20th. And it needs to be read as part of a spectrum of reading that looks at the centrality of violence and coercion in understanding how the empire worked, but also transnational elements. In other words, people, for instance, in the vicious Irish wars of the 1920s, learn their craft, if that's the right way to put it, learn how to use violence, and then take that to Palestine, for instance, mm-hmm. which uh, Michael just mentioned. But I do want to point out the most important thing is to read as much as possible. In other words, it's a debate that we have to have mm-hmm. in schools and elsewhere, but we need the information. And I'd contrast one book which perhaps shows another side of the story which is important. And those are the diaries just published a few weeks ago of Chris Patton, the last colonial governor of Hong Kong. They're just called the Hong Kong Diaries. They're actually a a very wickedly witty read in many ways since he seems to have very sensibly, not censored himself too much in terms of what he thinks both of, you know, the Chinese who he was interacting with at the time on negotiations on Hong Kong, but also his own uh, British parliamentary colleagues. But what is also very clear there is something that is also part of that legacy, which is the, the very difficult interaction between the reality of being a colonial governor. And Patton is you know, absolutely clear that the violence through which Hong Kong was obtained in 1842 is not something that should be forgiven or forgotten, but also the capacity to bring certain things such as free media, um, the capacity to actually have debates in schools about the legacy of, of colonialism, which continued for about 20 years in Hong Kong schools, even after the handover before essentially that's been shut down under the new national security law and the feeling actually that people can use a legacy that is born in violence to create something that is their own in the anti-central point is that the freedoms that were visible in hong kong for about 20 years before the handover and 20 years afterwards are the product of chinese people's interactions they're not a gift from the british but they draw on what's there and make something that's more than the sum of the parts and that's important too
0: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Christmas presents should be books that after Christmas you can curl up with and get engrossed in and yeah. transported by. And other lands sounds like exactly that.
1: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: So circling back to Elkin's book then, I feel like this can be folded into a wider genre of hidden histories, which continue to be really popular in history publishing, I think it's fair to say, as well as stories connected to colonialism. There's also stories highlighting the fates of women who might have been lost in the historical record. What books connected to hidden histories would you also recommend?
3: Well, I've chosen as one of my books, um, After Sappho by Selby Wynne Schwartz, um, which I chose because I love Sappho. And I don't know if you've read Sappho, but it's this sort of, you get these, it's like walking past a door that's just slightly ajar. So most of Sappho has been lost. It was considered pretty racy by um, centuries of people and, and generally wasn't copied out with the care that it might have been copied out. So if you look at a Sappho poem on a page, it mainly looks like a sort of page sprinkled with pepper. It's just sort of dot, 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 word like an eagle, dot, 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 dot. dot, And and it's a very fast, if you want to knock off a classic, you can sort of do it in a single sitting as you just fly your way through it. But it's incredibly beautiful, the bits that are there. Sappho is, is you see why everybody loved her, why everyone could loved her and imitated her and took her poems and turned them into his. And um, for centuries, she was respected in a way that was quite unusual for a woman in, in from the ancient Greek world. And one of, I mean, you just have to read some of her lines now. There's one about, uh, love has unbound my limbs and set me shaking a monster bittersweet in my own making. And there's another one about her watching her lover. Um, Sappho, of course, has female lovers, hence Suffolk, hence lesbian. She was from the island of Lesbos. And... It's her watching her lover talk to someone else at a dinner party. And it's so beautifully observed, that sort of fury and the fire of jealousy and what she's saying. And and the wonderful thing is is you're not quite sure what's going on either. Is there anything? or Is this all in her head? So I chose this book, After Sappho, which looks at women's lives and tells it in a kind of, um, well, actually a sapphic way in both senses. Lots of them have relationships with women. And also it's sapphic in the sense of, it's snippets. So it's it's one of these sort of fractured histories. It's like sort of you get a shaft of light illuminating one bit of someone's life and then it's gone and then it's another and then it's gone. And and it's beautiful writing. So the writing is just wonderful. And it has these real sort of heavenly, these kind of soaring moments when, when you just think that's an absolutely lovely phrase. Um, and it looks at women's lives and the lives of women writers and kind of women artists um, sort of starting in Italy in the late 19th century and then coming up into the 20th century and then touching on
4: Virginia Woolf. I mean, I confess guiltily myself now. I wrote a book 40 years ago, 40 years is ridiculous, isn't it, Uh, that uh, was a series of biographies from the Anglo-Saxon past and there was only one woman in the ten, I think. And I've just put the book out again with five more chapters, which are about women. And there was a challenge almost because a recent bestseller on the anglo saxons said it's not possible to write the biographies of women in... In the Dark Ages, and uh, uh, but it is it requires a lot of effort, a lot of scrutiny of sources in different ways, and uh, and you're uncovering scholarship as well. You know, you look at the Institute of Historical Research in, in, in London, and until very recently, you walked up the stairs, and all the directors were male, and all the historians whose portraits were up the staircases were male. Now the gaps between them have been filled by re- really great women scholars who were often, you know, pioneers in the field, but were not recognised in the same way, you know. And uh, so the the riches of that material are really, really fantastic. And, uh, and now, since the 70s, being uncovered, really, you know, when I was a student, you couldn't do a women's history course.
2: What are some of the biggest trends you've noticed in publishing, aside from Hidden Histories?
3: One of the things that I have noticed is books that concentrate on groups. So the the one that I was reviewing, we looked at at this group in Germany. And then there's lots of lots of books that kind of try to dive into a world that's exciting at the time. Um Daisy Dunn, who's another uh, classicist, has written one called Not Far From Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars. And it is it looks at that period when you know, War Evelyn War was there when lots of the great classical scholars were there. When and you can kind of pick out the characters who then turn up in *Brideshead*. So there's somebody who carries a teddy bear. There's all of this misbehavior. There's the 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 drinking societies, and then there's these classicists who are constantly jostling with each other, competing with each other. Um, and and how. Each one of them, none of them is a sort of island on their own. They're all becoming who they are in response to and in reaction to the others who are there at the same time as them. And I find that really interesting. And you get it, you see it again and again in kind of historical periods. There just are moments when you get this sort of uh, amazing flowering of really, really interesting people. In a place, and you always wonder: was that just chance, or were they, in some senses, stimulating other people to think better, write better, do more?
5: I think I've seen a few books this year. I mean, there's always books of this sort in in general, but a, a bit of a trend of people who are bring to fruition big, big scale re-examinations of things perhaps we thought we knew. So the one that came to my mind, you know, I'm sure everyone will have heard of if not necessarily have read uh, 1066 and all that, you know, the classic um, book from the 19- from 1930, I think it is, Seller and Yeatman, um Parody of British History. And I really enjoyed Judith Green's The Normans this year, because what it did was, of course, to look at 1066 and all of that and explain to people like me who you know, obviously could recite the year, but if pressed, would have to admit that perhaps the details of what happened at that time were rather rather limited, but then actually placed the Normans in this huge European context I and mean, the idea of the Normans in Sicily, uh, which doesn't necessarily link in the popular mind to that very English story. And beyond that, in a European context, I know that Michael is one of the global experts on this subject, if you've you know sort of seen this kind of um, uh, return to some of the subjects of uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon Norman world as a sort of re-examination.
4: Well, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, my my academic area is very narrow. Actually, Ron, <laughs> it's the kind of early 10th century, late 9th, early 10th. But it is a very interesting. I think it's a very interesting time. So I think people are taking a lot of different perspectives at the moment. And uh, although, you know, the big trends are the Hidden histories, to be honest, in you know that is the big trend. It's hidden voices. It's the people who never spoke. Like for, whether it's deaf people or you know on slavery, a whole new historiography is is, is erupting now. Uh, you know the history of the like. Jamaica has brought a huge amount of interest in the last few years, hasn't it? With the Takis Rebellion bold, and yeah. all those those books, and it is really, really interesting. And those rebellions go back as far as there were slaves in Jamaica. You know, the the uh, it's the, our whole representation of these events has been conditioned by the victors telling the story, really, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's and it's not the story. And the real stories, the real voices, are now starting to come out in different sources and. You know the the amazing slave archive at uh, UCL that is now uh, opening things up so fantastically. F- friend of mine, this is a little diversion, but it gives you an idea of how sources connect with people and history. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, uh, she's uh, an immigration judge. She was probably one of the first black immigration judge, and she comes from Jamaica. And recently, she was. Um, uh, in her father's will, she was bequeathed a plot of land in Jamaica, and she didn't know why this plot of land had been given to her. You know, and uh, and going into the UCL archive, she discovered this little plot of land. When the when slavery ended and the division took place, this had come to her family, and and out of this, a whole story of the the, the prehistory of you know, the Maroons and the, the the slave wars in Jamaica and everything started to just erupt, you know, and uh, she got a plane to Jamaica <laughs> And a new history emerges, you know.
2: That's incredible. So would you say then that there's more of an appetite for books concerning hidden histories than traditional blockbusters looking at World War II or the Tudors?
3: Oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at World War II books, they still shoot right to the top. One of the books I was um, enjoying listening to this year um, was Ben McIntyre's Colditz retelling. And it's great fun. Ben McIntyre writes books about the Second World War. They're always romps. They're always entertaining. He always describes the characters very deftly. And Colditz is great fun. It's full of sort of um, French prisoners being sort of springboarding over the wall of Colditz and then walking for hundreds of miles and getting uh, it's sort of stylish fun. But also one of the things that he's doing, it is Second World War and it is Colditz. So you you know what you're going to get in a sense. But there's also some a much more sinister side to it, which is um, one of the things that you don't hear so much is is the relationships between the prisoners, which could be pretty shocking. So the French prisoners said that they didn't want to be billeted with the Jewish French prisoners. And so you get that sort of thing, uh, that that kind of tale, in a well-known tale even, there's a less well-known tale underneath.
4: But there's no end to World War II books, is there? I mean, friends of mine write them and they're incredibly successful and you think one's green with envy at their sales. But um, uh, the British obsession with the Second World War is something that really, you know, there was a time three or four years ago around Brexit when we had Dunkirk, The Finest Hour, Churchill, you know, several big feature films at the same time. Ludicrous tellings in history. Dunkirk was a ridiculous version of... The, of of the story you know i mean my uncle was at dunkirk i read about it, and that film did, did not tell the story of dunkirk but why we we well it's obvious i guess it's why we um we lap it up is because we can't shake it off you know even the queen's funeral militarism and empire were still shadowed that funeral didn't they you know it's uh But maybe it's true of all societies. Maybe, you know, you need these stories also to create cohesion and and allegiance. But the obsession with the Second World War strikes me as being unhealthy. Even, I think,
5: you know, it it is clear that the Second World War holds an extraordinarily dominant position. Uh, Having said that, I'm guilty having written the odd book on it myself, at least in the Asian context. A different war, though, right? (laughs) Well, no, but part of the Second World War. But I was thinking actually of a recent book, Richard Overy's Blood and Ruins, which actually does... Tied together some of the themes we're talking about um, today in that it looks at the Second World War as a war of empire and of empires and actually does a lot of things, including actually bringing in the Japanese empire in a comparative aspect, which is one of the things that tends not to happen with the sort of big overview types of books. So although I think it's becoming harder to do, that book does suggest that even now there perhaps are blockbusters that can take a, a, a new viewpoint on the question.
3: Mm. Yeah, and the Empire is something that is often edited out of the Second World War in the way when people always say we were standing alone. (laughs) I mean, well, hardly.
4: Yeah.
2: So, so far, we've touched a lot on books that you've admired. But on the flip side, what do you think has been left out this year? What did you want to see more of?
5: I would say that, I mean, in a sense, it's, it's, it's difficult um, in a kind of void calling for things that aren't there. But I would like to see even more books, or perhaps actually I've been, you know, remiss in, in not noticing them, about even more um, parts of the world that haven't received the attention they might have in the Anglophone world. And I'm going to give an area here, which I realize is a bit of a cop out, which is South America. The reason being that my strong suspicion, as someone who you know, doesn't read Spanish, language scholarship is that there are is inevitably a huge amount in Portuguese as well, I should say, because of, of Brazil and, and the lusophone world. Um, there's a tremendous amount, I know, that's published in those languages. But I guess I'm being selfish, because for English language readers, of whom there are a lot, these are still parts of the world where there's so much to explore. I think you could, also you could find a lot of people these days who are kind of well-read and give you a sort of thumbnail sketch of what went on perhaps in India or South Africa. But actually, Brazil, Argentina, and Parts of the world that have their own Colombia that have these long and really interesting histories. I mean, for instance, the birth of liberal democracy and multi-party democracy. South America has a really important part in that. And yet relatively few studies, not none, but relatively few, look at those histories and then connect them to stories that we know in the wider world. So that's something I'd love to see more of.
3: Something I'd love to see more of, and, and this is pure selfishness, um, is I'd like to see more nitty gritty books about the engineering and the practical things in the ancient world. The Venn diagrams of people who are interested in engineering and the Venn diagrams of people who write history books or really don't overlap very much. And so I was trying to just research Roman roads, and there's... For something, it is the thing that we all know about the Romans, these straight roads. But actually, getting to find good books on the Roman roads, how much they sped up the empire, how much they facilitated. Huge amount, huge volumes of people who are going to and fro. Who you see in the laws, you know, there are different laws ruling on different people who are turning up in Rome. Who can wear what? Who can't wear what? Um, they don't like. Uh, there's a sort of fashion for trousers. Comes with barbarian northerners. The Romans think is terrible, and they sort of pass laws against it. And then they change their mind. And I would love to see somebody kind of quantitatively. Attack empires because it's so much, and practically, it's so you get so much from that kind of physical, numerical look at things that 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 just telling the stories doesn't give you. Someone did a thing to thinking of empires and emperors once. Somebody did a study on Roman emperors and found that their life expectancy was quite a lot shorter than your average Roman, which was quite (laughs) short anyway. (laughs) But these things they, they they illuminate things in a way that narrative can't.
4: Yeah, I mean, I haven't gone into bookshops thinking. There's a big gap here, but I suppose if I were thinking about my own interests, dis- in, in English language books, disappointingly, few books in the last twenty years on um, on pre-mogul India. You know, there, there you have a biggest country in the world, the, probably the oldest civilization if you count back to the towns in Baluchistan, incredible riches and. We get a lot of great stuff on the Moguls, really great stuff on the art, on the culture, on the administration, and all that. But if if I want to read a book about the Guptas, or the Cholans, or even going right back to the Indus Valley, you know, some of the specialists are in English language writers like Mark Kanoya. But there's the, the largest of the ancient civilizations by far. You know, the mm-hmm. cities of uh, the Indus Valley were in enormous, and they were real cities, not like the royal enclosures of late Bronze Age China. But the, the, the English publishing world has disappointed me in that area, let me put it that way. It's <laughs> just worth reflecting
5: for a moment, I think, on the conditions which, you know, your question is is put obviously in a sense... Um, Uh, Rhiannon is a commercial one, you know, why aren't there things out there to buy? But think about all the bits you need to put together. You need a culture that respects learning foreign languages, that respects the academic, um, you know, craft of writing history, and then has enough people. Because, of course, most historians in universities are always going to be specialists, and that's what we're trained to do. But the people who are then able to sort of pull the threads together to tell a bigger story – that is something that actually the Venn diagram for is really quite limited, and I think we, you know, when we when we do call for people to write more history that's accessible, just having a bit of appreciation of actually how many different bits have to come together to make that work mm. is really worth bearing in mind. Mm.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah, um, yeah, very good not to continue to be totally commercial, but I'm afraid I am going to be totally commercial <laughs> because the next question is about Christmas. Which history books would you like on your Christmas lists?
5: Well, anything by Michael or Catherine would be absolutely very welcome <laughs> indeed. I have to uh, to say multiple copies, perhaps. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'd like to see Ian Kershaw's personality in power, which asks the question, is the great man view of history true? And how much is somebody just sort of riding the wave of history and then saying that they created it and how much are they actually shaping the world. Mm. And he looks, at, he looks in different chapters at, at different men. And it's something you always wonder, particularly because our historical tradition has so often taken the great man view of history. Mm. So I'd, I'd like to read that and see him analyse. And I don't think he comes, from what I understand, I don't think he comes down on one side or the other. I think he, he says sometimes they do, sometimes...
5: Well, because the point about Christmas presents is that um, someone else gets to choose uh, and, you know, would we'll try and uh, uh, fulfill something you'd like to, to to see, I think I pick up on a theme we, we talked about a little earlier in the conversation. I still think actually the number of biographies of Women who have made a difference in history is still so limited compared to the number of big fat biographies of generals and, you know, people on horseback and prime ministers and, and and all of that. And, you know, one understands the reasons for that, which have a lot to do with sources. But even in that context, I think that if someone could increase the number of biographies on my shelf of women from around the world who have, uh, you know, made such a huge difference in history. Maybe collective biographies uh, would, be, would be part of the way towards that. That's something I'd really want to read.
2: Fantastic. And Michael, how about you?
4: Well, I, a book that I really want to read and I haven't bought, so I hope it goes into my Christmas stocking, is Other Lands by... Well, I have that here too, so you can take
0: that as well.
4: Right. This sounds so amazing. It's a history of the world before history, before people. Mm. And so he's trying to write the the history of the organisms and the plants and the creatures and everything as as the world grows from protozoic slime or whatever we came out of you know it sounds absolutely incredible effort of imagination he's a very young gifted uh, biologist and uh, it sounds like a tour de force and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that because Christmas presents should be books I mean my family would never buy me a history book of course but Mm -hmm. um, you, you know Christmas presents should be books that after Christmas you can curl up with and getting engrossed in and yeah. transported by and other lands sounds like exactly that
2: a great pick so to round up our conversation we're going to be leaving 2022 behind and looking to the future what books are you most excited about that is set to come out next year in 2023
3: um again mine's mine's a classical one um it's emily wilson has done a new translation of the iliad which i would love to see she did the odyssey before and um does it beautifully and it's a real skill because you want to at once keep the sense that this is an old language and an old bit of an old language Um, because the Iliad was written down probably in 800 BC but goes back to a date of maybe 500 years earlier than that. And so it would have felt archaic even in its early days. And so to both get that sense of it being old but without it feeling... Yi is something I think that she does very well.
5: I'd like to just mention a couple of books, which I think are forthcoming in 2023, although they may be near the other end of the year and, you know, no bad thing to, to wait for good things. One is a book that's going to look in a big-scale way at that era in modern Chinese history. Um, and I'm not sure there's a title yet, but the, the authors are very well-known, two really major historians of uh, modern and contemporary China, Odd Anna Vestad, Oe Vestad, and Chen Jian. And their book is going to be looking at the whole period from the 1960s and the Cultural Revolution all the way up to the late 1980s. Uh, they've had access to all sorts of materials that other people haven't had before. It's going to be a really big think reassessment, not just of China's uh, changes during that time, but how that fits into what we know about the Cold War world. And that puts in mind a second book, which I think I'm allowed to uh, to mention. It's uh, I think nearly. Out, but it will probably you know take some editing and so forth. But I'm expecting in 2023, and that's by the brilliant young um, historian of Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, and. China and Eurasia more broadly, Sergei Radchenko. Some of you may know that he's, you know, been speaking very, very frankly and very brilliantly about Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the news recently and on Twitter and, and elsewhere. But he's an absolutely fantastic historian. His book, which I think is going to be called The First Fiddle, which is not about uh, Del Boy Trotter, but um, as it were, uh, not playing second fiddle, um, is a really comprehensive history of the Soviet Union in the Cold War, drawn from Moscow archives, which he knows like the, the back of his hand and huge number of materials there that just haven't been seen before. And I, for one, can't wait to see that in print because I think it's going to you know, transform the way that we understand the Soviet Union and the centrality of its history, In that period. And also remind us, I mean, you know, probably everyone else around here at the table is far too young to remember. But those of us oldsters who remember the Soviet Union, remember what a big deal it was in the world. And how if you speak to, you know, people like my teenage daughter, you know, it's a historical phenomenon they're aware of, but it's a bit like the Babylonian Empire. It was something that existed a very long time ago. And for those of us whom it was a a day to day reality, at least in in the world, seeing it as a historical object is going to be fascinating.
0: That was Michael Wood, Rana Mitter and Catherine Nixie speaking to Rhiannon Davis. You can watch an extended video version of this conversation on our website at historyextra.com. Just search for Books of the Year to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.